Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. So we'll be in Hebrews chapter 12. I invite you to turn there in uh, your copy of God's Word. And Mike, uh, over the, the, the five Sundays uh, in June, had walked you through the first seven or so verses, I think, of Hebrews chapter 11, where we're, we're, we're finding uh, out from God's Word what, what it means really to walk in faith, to know God and, and to trust God and to, to live lives that, that exhibit the characteristic of, of faith. So there's some kind of definition stuff there in the first couple of verses. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then you have these examples all throughout chapter 11. And I know he brought you through a few of those real specifically. And then Jen just read for us the rest of it, verses 8 through 40, of all these saints uh, throughout the Old Testament who by faith did all these big, crazy things, right? They're kind of legends of the faith. This is, uh, I've heard uh, Hebrews 11 called the, the hall of faith, right? It's kind of like the hall of fame of following God, following Christ. And so these are kind of the, the legends of the faith. And, and the, the purpose or the, the point, I think, behind uh, all of these things is to say, this is who we are. This is our team, right? We're a part of that same family, the same st- thread of faith that led Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and on down through uh, to even to the current day, uh, that th- same thread of faith wields its way into our life as well. And so the author of Hebrews then turns in chapter 12 to address the audience. So he's been saying, look at all this, consider Abraham, consider Moses, consider all of these amazing examples of faith. And then he says they died, hadn't yet received what was promised because there was a better thing that God was in the midst of doing. And in fact, we are the recipients of that better thing, namely the covenant in Jesus Christ by his blood. And then he turns to the audience and that first word in chapter 12 is therefore, we know in light of all of this, in light of who these people were and the ways that they knew and followed God and believed Him, and in light of the fact that this is what faith looks like, then He gives us these instructions. I'm going to read to you just the first three verses of Hebrews 12. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
So he gets personal. He gets practical. Here's what this means for you as you consider the ways that the saints of God throughout time have believed him and followed him in acts of faithfulness, in acts of obedience, even at great cost to themselves. Therefore, let's follow that example, right? He says, let us also lay aside every weight. And he goes on and gives instructions. And so, again, seeing ourselves as in this stream of faith and faithful saints, we have a call. We have a job to do, a life to live, a task to fulfill. And the way that he expresses it is through this great metaphor of the running of a race. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I think it's very uh, appropriate that he would use a, a metaphor like this. He's writing to Jewish Christians, that is, Old Covenant Jews who had received Jesus as the Messiah and had therefore converted to Christianity. So they're Jewish people, but they've trusted in Jesus as the Christ. And so they're Jewish Christians. And the contents of the letter suggest in many ways that he's writing to people with a strong Greco-Roman influence. In other words, they're very familiar with uh, the kind of cultural uh, uh, system and, and, and way of the Roman Empire. And these Jews are often called Hellenistic Jews. If you ever read that phrase or you're like looking along in a study Bible and you see something like that, Hellenistic Jews, what does that mean? It just means Jewish people who had been so immersed in the kind of Greek-Roman culture that they had really imbibed a lot of that and taken on a lot of that kind of cultural influence themselves. And so they're Jewish people who have been influenced by Greek language and culture. And if you keep that in mind, it makes great sense that the author would turn to this metaphor of a race. Think of the great Colosseum, the great arena where there might be all these uh, spectators gathered and athletes running this race. This would be a very Greek, very Roman kind of a, uh, a picture. They would immediately not only understand the point that he's making, but, but might even be inclined to sense the, the seriousness, even the excitement uh, and the importance of the message being relayed. So the thought of running a race would, would conjure up immediate a sort of awareness and identification in their minds. And then he speaks, the, the, the first people in the metaphor that we see are actually the people in the stands, right? So if you've got this race and this big arena, the first people he talks about are not the people that are on the track running the race. It's the people in the stands surrounding the audience of thousands. And who is that audience? Who are the people in the stands? It's all of the saints of God that he just enumerated in Hebrews 11, which he very, you know, kind of conveniently gives this and on and on and on, you know, kind of a thing like time would fail me to tell of. And then he lists several more and they walked about and, uh, you know, in caves and they were sawn in two and put to death by the sword, all this stuff like men of whom the world is not worthy, he says. So it's these people, it's these saints of God who have gone before that are in the stands as the audience for this race. So you get this very kind of vivid picture of faithful saints of God who have completed their race, who now take their place in the stands, and it's as though they're watching us as we take the track. 
and as we run the race that we're called to run. It's a very powerful metaphor. Now, I don't think we should necessarily get too caught up in taking this too literally and think that this means necessarily that you know, Christians who have died are in heaven just watching down on us. You know, and there's a lot of kind of folk theology that would, that would lean on things like that. Um, so I don't know that we need to take this too literally. But as, as a metaphor, thinking of those who have gone before and run such faithful races as examples to follow. And as that stream, we're, we're in the same stream as these people. We're running the same race. If you think of it like a relay race. They've simply handed the baton on to us, and it's now our turn to carry it faithfully to the end of our race. The point of the witnesses is to remind us this is our team. This is the team that we're on. The faithfulness of these stalwarts of the faith, and countless more who aren't listed here. You could even carry this down through the the. the, the the centuries since the, the biblical days closed and identify many more men and women who faithfully uh, followed Christ and endured great hardship and ran their race faithfully. It provides a legacy. It gives us examples to consider and it reminds us of the certainty of our hope. You see, they completed the race and they obtained their reward. And the same will be true for us if we will endure, if we will complete the race. So, given this analogy of the running of a race and this audience surrounding us, the author gives us three important ways to run the race faithfully. If the race is faithfully following Christ, living lives of faith, and carrying out the race that is set before us, the path that God has given us to walk, there's three ways that we can do that. The first way is to shed distractions intentionally. Look there in verse 1. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Pause. Lay aside every weight. We've got to shed distractions and burdens and things that would weigh us down. A runner must be free of hindrances and burdens that will weigh him down. Uh, in, in this day, the Roman runner would have stripped off all unnecessary articles of clothing, right? The basic kind of private areas would be covered, but that'd be about it. The rest of it is just going to get in the way. And if you think that they wear these kind of long robes and they're trying to run, it's going to get tangled, right? It's going to wrap around his legs and his arms and he's going to slow down. You're not going to win a race if you are getting tangled up in your clothing. And, of course, modern-day runners uh, know a thing about, or two about this as well. I'm not one of them. I don't generally run unless I'm being chased. But there, there are people, I even know a few of them, might be in this room, who like to run. And I think you know that you want to wear the most kind of aerodynamic clothing and kind of the, the lightest weight shoes that are, not going to hit, that are not going to hinder you. You might even shave your legs and stuff. For real, I knew a guy that did that. He thought the hair slowed him down, so he just shaved it all off. All right. He was a pretty fast guy, so maybe there's something to it. But you get rid of the stuff, right? You, you shed distractions and, and weights. The things that are going to get in your way, just get them out of there. Ruthlessly get them out of the way. In the Christian's race, in the, that metaphor of the Christian life as a, as a long-distance kind of endurance race, these distractions might be things that are not necessarily bad things or sinful things. They could be good things. 
could be commitments that we have made or relationships that we've held on to or even things like entertainments or hobbies or just things that we enjoy all kinds of things that just suck away our time and energy and so as we're looking to run the faithful race that God has put in front of us there's got to be this intentionality in looking at our lives and evaluating the ways we're spending our time, the ways we're spending our money, the things that are occupying our thought space and our emotions. What, am I, what do I find myself thinking about a lot? Or the things that make me anxious or that keep me up at night. What, what are those things? And if there's anything that can be cut away, to give us a singular focus on running the race ahead of us. Get rid of it, right? That's what the author would say here. Let us lay aside every weight. I wonder what those things might be for you. Again, not necessarily sinful things or bad things, but just things that take up too much time and energy and thought and care. Things that are maybe too close to your heart that you need to push back, that would weigh you down and keep you from focusing on the race that he's given you to run. So the first thing we've got to do is shed distractions intentionally. The second thing we've got to do if we're going to run a faithful race is to fight sin relentlessly. Fight sin relentlessly. That's the very next phrase in verse 1. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Isn't that the truth? Doesn't sin cling so closely? So much more closely than you wish? Some translations say the sin which so easily entangles. I like that language. And you get that, that image of somebody's robe getting you know, wrapped around their leg and he's tripping and falling on his face. Like That's what sin does. It, it gets us wrapped up. And if we're trying to run a race of faith and follow Christ and be obedient to him, sin just goes, nope. I'm grabbing. I'm getting your leg. I'm getting in your way. You're, 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 you're held down. And there's a tension here. In the Christian life and in Christian theology, there's, there's a tension here because Jesus has endured God's wrath against our sin and thus has mercifully freed us from its penalty. And so it's true and right of us to say we're free from sin, right? And Christ has put sin to death that we can sing things like that and mean it and it's true and it's glorious. And yet the reality of the Christian life is that sin still clings to us. It still calls to us. It still deceives us. In Romans 7, Paul, the apostle, paints a poignant, all too familiar, all too identifiable portrait of the frustration of sin's continuing grip and influence. I'm going to quote a few bits of this from Romans chapter 7. He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. 
I see in my members, as parts of my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What sin like just lives in me. It's just there. Does that sound familiar? Anybody else struggle like Paul in this passage? The things I hate, I keep doing. And the things I want to do, for some reason, I can't do it. I find myself ignoring it or neglecting it or failing it all the time. There's this ongoing battle. And we get frustrated because we keep doing the things we don't want to do. It tangles us up. It clings to us. There's a carnivorous plant called a sundew. Are you familiar with a sundew plant? The sundew is a plant that grows in wet, marshy areas. And because the ground is so wet and, you know, kind of changes, it it lacks a lot of the nutrients from the soil that it needs. And so it supplements uh, its diet with unsuspecting insects like flies and other things. And so the the sundew has these tongue-like kind of leaves. And on these leaves grow hundreds of tiny little tendrils. At the end of each tendril is a little drop of a sticky, mucus-like substance. But here's the trick. These sticky globs of mucus at the end of the the little twigs look to insects like drops of morning dew. And so an unsuspecting fly uh, who is looking for a cool drink will land on this plant thinking it's going to get a drink of water. But once the insect touches its sticky gobs, he finds that he cannot escape. He's stuck. And the more he struggles to get free from it, the more the little tendrils of the plant actually begin to wrap themselves around the fly. And the more he struggles, the more he's trapped. And eventually the whole leaf folds itself in on the fly and encloses it in its trap and just sucks it dry. That's a pretty horrible way to meet your end. That is what sin does. We think maybe it's not that harmful. We think maybe I can handle it. Or I can do this that one time and then it'll be alright and I can get myself out of it no problem. And yet you put your hand there and you find you can't pull it back. And so you add your other hand to get strength and now that hand is trapped too and the more you wrestle the more trapped you are what sin easily entangles you this is personal this is specific sin is very much alive in each one of us but it gets its teeth into us at different points and in different ways everybody's struggle is not exactly the same This verse invites us to know ourselves and our weaknesses well and to give careful attention to how we as individuals are likely to fall into temptation. And if we're going to run a faithful race, we've got to fight it. And we've got to fight it hard. Kent Hughes says of this verse, Some sins that tempt and degrade others hold little appeal for us and vice versa. Sensuality may be the Achilles heel for many men, but not all. Another who has gained victory over such sin may regularly down jealousy's deadly nectar, not realizing it is rotting his soul. 
Dishonesty may never tempt some souls, for guile simply has no appeal to them. But just cross them and you will feel Satan's temper. Right? Sin looks a little different. It, it affects us a little differently. It grabs us in different ways. But it grabs us all. It entangles us all. If we are not intentional to take aim at the roots of sin in our lives and fight against them. And it is so deceptive. This is one of the ways that sin is so dangerous is that it tricks us. At times we can stumble into sin without even really realizing we've done it until it's too late, until it's already happened. And then the only right course of action is to acknowledge it, to confess it, to repent of it. And then right there is another battle because you're fighting against now that indwelling pride that says... I'm good. I'm strong. I don't need to confess this. I don't need repentance, right? People just need to cut me some slack or whatever it is. And so the, the battle continues in all these different ways. So if we're going to run a faithful race, if we're going to follow Christ in faith, we have to fight sin relentlessly. And brothers and sisters, we need each other in this fight. You can't fight sin alone any more than that fly can fight his way out of the sundew's trap. We need one another. We need the perspective of brothers and sisters who can see our sins and blind spots, maybe in even clearer ways than we can. We need people who care about us, who are not out to attack us or to harm us or condemn us, but who care about our souls to say, hey, brother, I think this is a way that sin might be entangling you. I think this is a way that your race is being hindered because you've been entangled by this sin. We need each other. That's why God is so wise in in establishing the church. You're part of the same body. Work for each other. Help each other. So we've got to shed distractions intentionally. We've got to fight sin relentlessly. And the final way that he gives us to run this race is to look to Jesus constantly. Look to Jesus constantly. The key truth of this passage, I think this is really the kind of central, most important thing, it comes into focus right here. So verse 1 gives us the command, lay aside sin, right? Lay aside distractions, lay aside sin. But verse 2 gives us the means of laying aside sin, namely looking to Jesus, Looking to Jesus. Look there at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The irony here is that laying aside sin isn't so much a matter of focusing on sin itself, but rather of turning our attention to Jesus Christ. The laying aside of sin is a matter of turning our attention to Christ more than it is of just thinking about sin and focusing on sin. I recently talked on the phone with a buddy of mine from Texas. I hadn't talked to him in actually a couple of years. And so I asked him, you know, where, what he was doing and how work was, and I asked him where he was going to church. And he told me that he had found this little church, this little country church, uh, where the, he said, the preacher screamed at me about my sin and made me feel like trash. It was great. I got some, he was like, I need somebody to tell me, like, how miserable I am and how far I fall short of the mark. And, and this guy just, you know, he's, he's up there and he's animated and he's talking about how bad my sin is. And he's like, that's what I need. 
And, uh, and you know, I totally get what he means. I mean, he is painfully aware of his weakness and, and unworthiness, and he wants to take seriously his own entangling sin. And that's good, that, that's worthy, right? We ought to want to take it seriously. He just told us we've got to lay aside the sin which clings so closely. And yet, here's the thing. Taking sin seriously doesn't just mean feeling lousy about it or wallowing in it. Woe is me, I'm the worst sinner in the world, so terrible. Like, that doesn't really do anything for us in the fight against sin. Our best strategy in the fight against sin is the pursuit of Jesus. It is the intentional and constant work to keep our eyes on Jesus. So the fight is keep Him in view. Fight to get into His Word. Fight to gather with the saints on Sunday mornings and at other times. Fight to pray, to confess your sins. To trust His grace. That's where the fight really lies. There was a Scottish preacher in the 18th century, excuse me, 19th century, named Robert Murray McShane. And he wrote something in a letter that's always stuck with me. The, the, the line itself that I've always remembered is, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. I actually used that line with my friend on the phone when he told me that he loved hearing about his sin and unworthiness. I said, it's good that you wanted to take sin seriously, but keep your eye on Jesus and what he's accomplished. But... He doesn't just mean by this, don't worry about your sin, right? It's not that big a deal. Uh, so here's the quote in full, the, 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 this, a couple of paragraphs from uh, McChaney's letter, and I hope it will encourage you. So he begins by quoting Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And then he says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself... Take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love. And repose in his mighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart. And so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. That's the key. Look to Jesus constantly. Keep him in view. If we fill our minds and our hearts with the beauty of Christ and his grace and his glory, that entangling sin starts to lose its grip. The things that used to grab us and hold us seem to hold us a bit more loosely. Well, look at what it says. He doesn't just say, look at Jesus. He gives us some very uh, specific ways that Looking to Christ will help us and, and fuel our fight against sin and our running of this race. 
He says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I mean, the founder means that he's, he's the source of faith, right? The Christian faith, it's not just to say that the Christian faith started with Jesus. It's to say that Jesus himself is the perfect embodiment of faith. He entrusted himself to God the Father. He's the source of faith. It's in him that we find faith. It's his grace that gives us faith. He's the source of faith, the pioneer of faith, if you will. And he's the perfecter of faith. And in that, that's more the sense of, of the completer of faith. He's the one who brings faith to its intended end. He's the beginning of faith and the end of faith. It's all of Christ. Look to him. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That phrase, despising the shame, comes from a Greek word, kataphroneo, which doesn't mean he really hated it. It means more like he thought little of it. The cross was filled with shame. It was a public, disgraceful, humiliating way to be punished and tortured and killed. It was filled with shame. But what, that's, what he tells us is he saw the shame of the cross, he endured the shame of the cross, and he thought, not worth worrying about. He thought little of the shame. He walked through brutal shame and humiliation, and he thought it unworthy of consideration. Why? Because of joy. For the joy that was set before him. Christ had joy in his view and he looked through the suffering and the shame and the agony of the cross to the joy that was on the other side of it and he went I don't care about the shame I can endure the shame because there's joy on the other side what's the joy the joy of a son returning to his father the joy of his earthly journey with its burdens and sorrows having been completed Think of Jesus in the last chapters of John as he's with his disciples and telling them he's about to go back to the Father and he offers this prayer in, in John 17. You can sense his eagerness to return to the Father. So the joy before him in one sense is, is the joy of knowing that he's going to be reunited with his Father. But I think it's also the joy of a Savior whose work of rescuing God's people has been accomplished. Right? When he was on the cross, one of those la very last things that he said, it is finished. It's been done. The barrier of sin that kept God's people away from God because he is holy and they are not has been removed. It's been dealt with. It's finished. He knew that the suffering of the cross was imminent and yet he looked past the suffering and shame. And what did he see? Joy. The joy of completed work. The joy of union with God. The joy of being once again at his right hand. That's where he tells us he is. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Place of honor. Place of authority. That's where Christ is. And so he endured all of this shame and suffering for our sake. For the joy that was set before him. And then he tells us in verse 3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. What's the opposite of that? We keep Jesus kind of at arm's length. We don't give ourselves opportunities to see Christ, to reflect on him and his grace and the gospel. 
If you don't do that, what happens? You get weary and faint-hearted. And if you're running a long-distance race, how's that going to go? If you get weary and faint-hearted, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it all the way through. So consider Him. Consider being refocus on, reflect on, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Brothers and sisters, the race is long. The race is hard. There are endless distractions and hindrances and sorrows along the way. How will you run faithfully without growing weary and faint-hearted? There's only one way. Consider Jesus. Keep Him in view all the time. Consider Him who bore your sin and suffered for your sake. Consider Him who disregarded the shame of the cross and endured to the bitter end so that you wouldn't have to receive God's wrath. Consider Him who is seated now, His work completed, at the right hand of the throne of God. And you know what He's doing there? He's praying for you. The author of Hebrews tells us that He is our advocate and that He ever lives to make intercession for us. That is, He is talking to God the Father on our account. He is cheering for us. He is watching us. He's waiting for us. If you don't care about all the other thousands of faithful saints who are in the stands watching, care about Jesus. He's watching. He's cheering for you. He's praying for you. Let the knowledge that Jesus Christ, your Savior and your brother, is waiting and watching for you give you the confidence and the courage to keep moving forward. Rest assured, he's smiling as he watches. Christian, you are on the track. You're in the race. If you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior, he's put a number on your chest and he's put you on the track and he said, go. You are running. How are you going to run? Are you going to run faithfully? Are you going to run with endurance? Are you going to shed distractions? Are you going to fight sin? And are you going to keep your eyes on Christ and remain faithful? Close by reading you some words from the Apostle Paul, who at the end of his life wrote to Timothy considering the, the, the race that he had run, and he used the analogy here of a race. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says to Timothy, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So he knows he's about to die. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown, that laurel crown that was placed upon the head of the one who won the race. Paul says, my race is over, and when I get to the other side, he's got that crown for me. But it's not just for me. He said it's for all who have loved his appearing. Brothers and sisters, let's commit to each other and to the Lord to run the race with endurance and to receive the crown when we get to the other side. 
Let's pray.